Welcome to this special audio highlights program of a breast cancer education symposium held as a satellite to the 2012 Oncology Nursing Society Annual Congress. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We asked nurse practitioners Ms. Georgia Litsis and Ms. Lita Smith to present and discuss patients from their practices. And we also solicited the viewpoints of two medical oncology investigators, Dr. Hope Rugo and Dr. Joyce O'Shaughnessy. We also asked the audience to send in cases and questions by text message. And to begin, Ms. Litsis presented a 52-year-old woman first diagnosed with localized ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer in 2007, but one year later was diagnosed with metastatic disease, this time ER-positive but HER2-positive. Ms. Litsis commented on the patient. She's very unique. She had a hard time accepting the fact that she had advanced breast cancer and derived a lot of strength and support from her family as well as her friends and made a lot of connections within the Dana-Farber family and found support there. She's very driven. She comes in with lots of folders of recent research that's been done on her two positive breast cancer. She's always looking at the clinical trials websites to find out what's new, what she could fit into. She just has an amazing strength. So we'll talk a little bit more as we go through this morning about you know what it means to be in this situation to take care of somebody with metastatic breast cancer, whether it's her two positive or negative. I want to focus a little more, though, on the science of what happened to her. She's currently on trastuzumab capecitamine. And what's her quality of life like at this point? She has an amazing quality of life. She has very minimal side effects. She only comes into the clinic once every three weeks versus weekly, and she feels she can maintain a better quality of life. So let's pick out a few of the oncologic issues in this case. And one question, Hope, we have is, now, in this situation, she had a biopsy. It was like, was only 18 months after a diagnosis, is that right, Georgia? Yes, And I'm, I'm sure it was, in most of these situations, it's pretty obvious that there's metastatic disease. So first question is, do you really need to do a biopsy when you have a patient you think's got a good chance of relapse and probably has metastatic disease? Do we need to really biopsy the patient, Hope? I think that if it's at all possible, we should biopsy metastatic disease. And I think that particularly as the disease goes on, when it doesn't look like the markers, we may even biopsy them again. And there are two reasons. One is that the initial tumor, the results may not have been correct. Sometimes those patients are treated at other places. Sometimes the tumor is very heterogeneous, so the part that metastasizes may be different from what we saw as the whole. And then there probably is some sort of transition of some of these tumors where there are additional mutations and there can actually be new mutations obtained that show changes like ER positive becomes ER negative. HER2 positivity from HER2 negativity is probably pretty rare, but it obviously, as far as we can tell, it can occur. So you wanna know that because in this case, it made an enormous impact on this woman's treatment. Right. And then the other issue, Joyce, in terms of this issue of rebiopsy, is how often do we see in a case like this where the markers actually change? There's been a lot of different data sets looking at this. I guess usually the HER2 and ER is the same as the primary. How often do they change, though? About 10% of the time, Neil, we actually still don't have the best way of testing the primary today. This keeps me up at night and gives me heartburn. So, Lita, we got our first text message, area code 503. I'm not sure where that is, but I think it's a really good question. It's about this issue of, you know, changing markers. If the patient's original tumor was ER positive and now the METS 
when you biopsy our ER negative, does that mean the patients never get hormonal therapy? Yeah, so I think it's very similar to this. So while 10% of the time things change, we have, if somebody has had a long progression-free survival prior to their metastases and they were ER positive and we're not in a pickle in terms of the amount of disease that they have, we may sort of continue to assume, if you will, that they are ER positive even if they're biopsy negative for the reasons that we just discussed, heterogeneity, et cetera. And so we may try a different type of antiestrogen therapy in that patient to begin with. So I got you got the message. 503 is Oregon, Portland, Oregon. That's great. Okay, here's another one. Georgia, area code 412. Is rebiopsy necessary in every patient? What about patients in their 80s? I think that's a great question. For the most part, if there's a site that we can biopsy, we will absolutely biopsy it. I think when someone's in their 80s, depending on their other comorbidities, one may attempt to biopsy if the site is easily accessible. So what about this issue? I think maybe things are a little bit different today, Hope, than they might have been three, four years ago. Things are changing quickly in breast cancer, particularly, I think, in HER2-positive disease. In terms of the philosophy of how long patients should be treated. Here's this lady who's gotten anti-HER therapy for over four years. She's gotten six different anti-HER kind of chemo treatments. Is that kind of becoming the norm, Hope? Well, I have to say that I think in many academic centers, it was the norm before and hasn't changed a lot. But I think that as we've had some trials suggesting that we should be using HER2 therapy through progression and that that really changes outcome, changes response and duration of response to therapy, that's become taken up very widely, certainly in the United States. I would say in other countries where there's a more sort of economic overlay, it may not be occurring as much. But I think we've seen really intriguing data that suggests that not only continuing the same HER2-directed therapy is better through progression, for example, trastuzumab and ataxane, trastuzumab and capecitabine, but that adding in HER2-directed therapies together, like trastuzumab and lapatinib, can overcome the resistance of a tumor that was growing on multiple prior regimens with trastuzumab. And we've seen that with some of these novel agents, too, that I know we'll talk about. So we're going to focus this discussion on two new anti-HER treatments that are suddenly out on the table, and likely you're going to be in practice in the near future, pertuzumab and TDM1. But first, Lita, another text question here relates to adjuvant treatment of HER2-positive disease, and specifically whether anthracyclines like doxorubicin are necessary, particularly in older patients and those with comorbidities where there's more concern about cardiac toxicities. How does this play out where you are, Georgia? I think that's a great question. You know, it depends. Where I practice, we use a lot of anthracycline-based therapy. Occasionally, we'll use docetaxel-based therapy if patients have significant heart toxicity. However, for older patients or in those patients who have smaller tumors, no negative. We have been trying to use paclitaxel with trastuzumab for 12 weeks, followed by a year of trastuzumab therapy for those small tumors that are no negative. I think we're hoping that at San Antonio in December that we'll hopefully be able to present some more data from our group regarding that regimen. And I guess there have been like 400 people that I know of who've been treated that way. What do you see globally in the people who get paclitaxel with trastuzumab without an anthracycline as opposed to the whole full deal with ACTH? I think coping-wise, they cope a lot better because there's a lot less chemotherapy in terms of side effects and toxicity profile. It's much better tolerated. Patients are happier, and they fare well as far as we can see. So, Lito, what about just giving, you know, an 80, 85-year-old patient, we'll talk a little bit about that later, 
What about just giving trastuzumab alone without any chemo in the adjuvant setting? Yeah, so in our institution, we have not really deviated yet from the clinical trial data. So even in the older population, I would agree with Georgia that we would tend to try and use weekly paclitaxel with trastuzumab followed by single-agent trastuzumab. In a younger population, we tend to skip the anthracycline, especially if they're node-negative and do docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab, again, following the clinical trial data. We did get another text. I'll throw this at Hope. This is from 916. Are any patients with HER2-positive metastatic disease cured? You know, that's a great question, and I was thinking about this patient. I mean, the patients who are cured probably don't relapse at 18 months after good adjuvant therapy, trastuzumab or not. So this patient, you know, HER2 positivity does confer a lot of chemotherapy sensitivity as well. So this kind of patient is very unfortunate, although clearly she's benefited and will presumably continue to receive additional lines of therapy. But we have a number of patients, particularly those who present with de novo metastatic HER2 positive disease, ER positive and ER negative who get treated, have an excellent response, have primary surgery, radiation, node sampling, et cetera, and sometimes resection of, say, an isolated residual liver metastases who are well many, many years later. I have patients who are you know, anywhere from 5 to 12 years out. And one of the things we really have to do with these patients are two. One is to decide how long we continue HER2-directed therapy. I mean, do we continue it forever? Or is 10 years enough? We don't know. And the second is, it would be really nice to know who those people are, but we don't. It's ironic. We used to think about HER2-positive disease as the worst type of breast cancer, and now there's too many new agents out there. Okay, just a couple real quick questions. I want to get to pertuzumab and TDM1. Those are the two really hot areas coming out in HER2-positive disease. But just real quick, Joyce, what about patients with node-negative small tumors that are HER2-positive? In the past, People with small, no negative tumors didn't get anything or didn't get chemo. What about the HER2 positive? Well, we have limited data to really know the natural history of these HER2 positive subcentimeter breast cancers. Of course, they're heterogeneous. Some may be very aggressive, ERPR negative, highly proliferative, HER2 positive with lots of LVI, et cetera. Obviously, that's an extreme example. On the other side, we may have an indolent triple positive where you have to actually wonder, well, gee, is it the ER or is it the HER2 who's really in charge? You know, because when you see a lot of that progesterone receptor that's present, and particularly if the proliferative status is not particularly high, HER2 may be just there along for the ride and the cancer may be really driven by ER. So we really have to individualize. Generally speaking, if you've got a cancer that looks like it's got some aggressive biology, you know, higher grade, ER negative or PR negative, we do think about chemotherapy. You know, the NCCN guidelines suggest a consideration of chemotherapy and trastuzumab for T1B, N0, so over five centimeters in size. Steve Jones, my partner, did a clinical trial in U.S. oncology of four cycles of docetaxel, cyclophosphamide, and trastuzumab with the trastuzumab going for a year, but just four cycles of chemotherapy, and looked at four years median follow-up, and there were 130 patients that were sub-centimeter, and no one recurred at the four-year mark. Of course, they got endocrine therapy, too. So it appears that these patients can do very well with the chemotherapy trastuzumab. The issue is we don't know exactly how poorly they would do with just regular chemotherapy or endocrine therapy, and probably they would do quite well. So it's probably not a large increment in benefit with the trastuzumab, but I think it's certainly reasonable for the T1BN0s. 
And I can tell you we're about to send out our latest patterns of care study. Incidentally, if you want to receive it, give us your email. We'll send it out to you. But I can tell you we presented a case of a 0.8 centimeter tumor. It's a pretty small tumor, no negative, HER2 positive, to 100 oncologists in practice and 41 clinical investigators in breast cancer. More than 90% of them would treat the patient with some kind of chemotherapy. A lot of them use the entrastezumab. A lot of them use the Dana-Farber regimen that Georgia was talking about. So we want to get to pertuzumab, but Lita, just one final word before that. Lapatinib, how does it work? And what do you say to a patient to prepare them when they're about to begin capecitabine lapatinib? So how lapatinib works is that it blocks both the EGFR or HER1, which is a intracellular tyrosine kinase domain, and also HER2. So it has some dual blockade. And there certainly is reams of data, including Dr. O'Shaughnessy's data with combination of lapatinib and trastuzumab together. I think the big issue with combination therapy of capecitabine and lapatinib is frankly adherence and how do you get these tablets into your patient. So think about your 65-year-old patient who's maybe on eight or 10 other medications, and now you're having them take the capecitabine twice a day, often breakfast and dinner with food, usually six to eight tablets, and then you're supposed to also take the lapatinib, usually five tablets in the morning without eating. And so just the whole adherence issue in and of itself I have found to be quite challenging, especially with older patients. And that's going to be really interesting if there's an adjuvant trial out there that includes lapatinib called the ALTO trial. We're waiting on the results, and it shouldn't be too long. If that's positive, it's going to be pretty interesting dealing with these side effects in the adjuvant setting. But let's focus on pertuzumab, and more from the point of view, I will start out with you, Hope. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how pertuzumab works, what we know about its activity. I mean, basically, everything changed in December at San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium when the data on pertuzumab were presented and then immediately published in the New England Journal. Now it's being discussed with the FDA and it may be available, you know, we'll see if it's approved. People are probably going to start using it. What do you think, Hope? Yeah, I think that pertuzumab will probably become available to us potentially as early as June and the last date for the FDA decision is early July, but we expect that it will be available before then. And I think it will have immediate uptake and people will use it right away. It's a really fascinating drug. So all the MABs, of course, are monoclonal antibodies. And, you know, it used to be that we thought that oral would be easier and better for patients, but it turns out that the oral agents, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors have a more toxicity, particularly GI with more diarrhea. And so, and you got to take them on an empty stomach and it ends up being actually easier to get an antibody every three weeks, which has minimal side effects. Pertuzumab blocks the heterodimers. So it blocks the ability of HER2 to bind to alternate partners. So HER2 can bind to HER1, HER3, HER4, but the most potent signaling combination, as Joyce mentioned, is the HER2, HER3 heterodimer. The thing is really important to remember is it's hard to believe that pertuzumab wouldn't work by itself very well, but it doesn't. And in a study where patients were progressing on trastuzumab, they were randomized to get pertuzumab alone or the combination, and the combination was what worked. And it's interesting because both of these agents and monoclonal antibodies in general that block HER2 have an antibody-dependent toxicity. So there's this immune effect, which turns out to be really, really important. So the combination of trastuzumab that blocks HER2 binding to itself 
and pertuzumab blocking the heterodimers and the immune effect appears to be what's working so well. And then this Cleopatra trial that Jose Baselga presented at San Antonio and published right afterwards is a fascinating study actually where women who had not received prior therapy for metastatic HER2 positive disease were randomized to receive standard chemotherapy with docetaxel and trastuzumab with either pertuzumab or placebo. This is and a lot of patients, over 800 people. Over 800 patients. And what's fascinating actually, and I think it's going to be interesting when the drug is approved, is that only 10% of these patients had received adjuvant trastuzumab. So a lot of them were diagnosed in the metastatic setting or had little cancers and their country didn't allow them to get trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. But the results were really striking. And actually the progression-free survival is 18 and a half months. That is the longest progression-free survival we've seen from not only any HER2-directed therapy, but from any chemotherapy regimen ever given for metastatic breast cancer. And then the survival's too early because there isn't enough events, but it's pretty striking. I mean, it's about a 50% difference in survival at this early standpoint. There's something about looking at 69 people dying versus 96 people dying that kind of goes beyond a lot of the curves that we're used to seeing. Joyce, I think when you think back in terms of what Hope was saying in terms of how this works, that there are two monoclonal antibodies attacking this receptor on two different spots. You kind of wouldn't think, you know, you'd see, I was kind of surprised when I saw that presented in December. What were your thoughts? And to what extent do you think this is clinically meaningful to a patient? I think it's hugely clinically meaningful. I think I agree completely with Hope. I think it'll be taken up immediately. Hopefully, we're hoping we get a lot of patients in our practice that are hoping that there will be insurance coverage for later line therapy, you know, using it as it was used with the docetaxel and the trastuzumab and the pertuzumab. And um, because patients will have resistance to trastuzumab, and this may be an excellent agent to overcome the resistance. Of course, the real promise of it is going to be in the adjuvant setting because with this kind of improvement in progression-free survival and very likely survival, although we have to wait and see, it's very likely that this is going to make another incremental benefit in the adjuvant setting. And Lita, one of, if not the major trial now that's going to look at pertuzumab, basically kind of like what we just saw in metastatic disease, so chemo and trastuzumab by itself or with this pertuzumab, but now in the adjuvant setting, so we're going to be adding in a monoclonal antibody, but you would think there shouldn't be that much more toxicity. Yeah, so I have not had the pleasure of participating in any of the pertuzumab trials, but it's my understanding that fatigue has been a big issue. And again, anytime you add a second targeted therapy or monoclonal antibody, the toxicities can be different. And so again, as oncology nurses, I think we're going to see more and more of these combinations of chemotherapy and targeted therapies or several targeted therapies together. So we're really going to have to learn about the different toxicities. Let's finish out our discussion with HER2 positive disease, which is another really exciting development. And again, Hope, we've heard about antibody drug conjugates now in lymphoma. There's the anti-CD30. It's actually approved Brentuximab vidotin. It's being given to people with Hodgkin lymphoma and anaplastic large cell lymphoma. But there's also an antibody drug conjugate in breast cancer. It's not approved at this point, but we have a lot of information on it. TDM1 or trastuzumab metancine, Hope. What is it and what do we know about it and where are things heading with it? 
This is a really exciting agent, and I mean, it's amazing how many options we're going to have, I think, to treat HER2-positive disease. So this is trastuzumab, the regular antibody, with a linker that's strong enough so that it won't release its payload until it gets into the tumor cell. And the payload is a chemotherapy drug called derivative of metensine, which acts kind of like a taxane. It inhibits microtubules and cell division. It's really, really potent, and initial studies showed that it couldn't be given by itself because it was too toxic to the liver. It's like 5,000 times stronger than doxorubicin or something. I mean, like then very, very potent. But then the taxanes. It, but very toxic. It's very toxic. And in terms of its potency, they looked at the ability to inhibit microtubules. So, and it's an interesting agent. I mean, you know, can't give it by itself. The linker has to be stable. And what happens is it binds to the HER2 receptor, and then the cell actually pulls the receptor into the cell inside the cytoplasm, and then it's released, and the linker is digested, and the chemo drug is released inside the cell, causing cell death. Well, you'd think that if a tumor was already progressing on trastuzumab, how would this work? But it does, and it's really remarkable. And in the initial phase two trials, we had two patients who stayed on who were resistant to everything, you know, chemo and trastuzumab and lapatinib, who stayed on for more than three and a half years. One of our patients is still on now for three, almost close to four years. And, you know, they had very bad HER2-positive breast cancer. Now, we don't know who responds, but it's really well tolerated. It's given every three weeks. Little transaminase increase and thrombocytopenia that you have to to watch out for. But there's a lot of enthusiasm. At ASCO this year, Kim Blackwell will present the results of the AMELIA trial. There's already been a press release on that. This trial looked at TDM1 versus lapatinib and capecitabine, so figuring you progressed on your trastuzumab chemo. And that primary endpoint was progression-free survival. There's also an overall survival endpoint. And the press release stated that the trial met its primary endpoint. It's a superiority endpoint. So it means that it met its endpoint of being better than lapatinib wow. and capecitabine. That's all we know from the press release. But as soon as they have data that they put into the late-breaking abstract, they put out a press release. Wow, that's really interesting. So what about this lady, Georgia? You know, one of the things about TDM1 is you're given this really potent chemo but you deliver it to the cancer cell. When she got TDM1, did she have any side effects? You know, she did fairly well. As Dr. Rugo said, we did see some thrombocytopenia with her. Unfortunately, we'd never had to hold her therapy due to thrombocytopenia. Overall, she actually did really well. Did she have uh, any hair loss or nausea and vomiting, any kind of chemo? Mild hair loss, mild nausea. She already had hair loss, so that was not an issue for her. But tolerated well, she really enjoys being on clinical trials. So anything she can do to be on a trial, she will do. Interesting. And then I guess we can just take a quick look, because we talked about these data that are going to be presented. But in terms of what we have, any comments in terms of what we've seen up to now, Joyce, in terms of the efficacy? You know, here it was compared to trastuzumab docetaxel, much less toxicity and actually seem to have better efficacy. It seems like it's kind of chemo trastuzumab, but without the chemo side effects. Yeah, this was an interesting finding. It was a head-to-head -head randomized phase two, first-line metastatic, comparing docetaxel and trastuzumab, which is really good therapy, versus the TDM1. And the TDM1 was substantially better with regard to progression-free survival, and one could hypothesize that that may be because 
over time, as you know, the docetaxel gets pretty toxic over time, and it needs to be stopped because of cumulative toxicity. But as Hope said, with the TDM1, patients can keep going on basically kind of until progression because there really doesn't seem to be, not that I've seen at least, cumulative toxicity with it, because I also had a patient that went about three years on it. Boy, did she do great, you know? So the ability to stay on the therapy appears to be translating into better efficacy for patients. So that's really, really good for our metastatic patients. So Hope, when you look at your patients who have TDM1 in terms of what you perceive in terms of side effects, if chemo's a 10 and, you know, endocrine treatment's a zero, where does TDM1 fit in in terms of quality of life? Well, it's very good because you don't, you know, hair loss is a really big issue for our patients with advanced disease and you don't lose your hair with TDM1. There is a little short-term toxicity. People get some fatigue with the infusion. They get a little bit of nausea sometimes and thrombocytopenia is something you have to watch out for. And do you see bleeding incidentally? No. Actually, when we were doing the initial phase two studies, we had to check the platelets every week and the lowest platelet count we saw was 17 and that patient did not have any bleeding. Now, we never have seen that since then. So it's quite unusual. Most patients will drop a little below 100, but that's it. The one thing we have seen is that patients' thrombocytopenia is long-lived, so even after they came off TDM1, their platelets didn't bounce back completely. And I think it'll be interesting to see when this is approved, which undoubtedly it will be by next year, what we see in practice in terms of patients who've been on the drug for a while. We also don't really know what the predictors of response are. It could be that in our patients who are truly taxane-resistant, that we see less less response in TDM1. It's just, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see again now with brentuximab vidotin out there and TDM1 probably coming on board, you know, five years from now, where we are in terms of these really interesting antibody drug conjugates. Let's go on to the second case and also, I guess, the issue of TDM1 in the adjuvant setting. I hope any comments in terms of efficacy and maybe a lot better quality of life? Yeah, there's an intro. You know, we did this trial, multi-center trial, looking at weekly paclitaxel and a year of trastuzumab, 12 weeks, and I mean, incredibly well tolerated. A lot of our patients used the cold caps, didn't lose their hair. And so the next step in that sort of continuum is to treat small HER2-positive disease, patients who don't qualify for the affinity trial you saw earlier with pertuzumab with TDM1, and just to give them, you know, four doses of TDM1 over 12 weeks, and then I think think we're giving them trastuzumab too. And we'll see what happens. That's another Dana-Farber-based trial that many sites will be participating in. Yeah, that's along that same line in terms of trying to give less toxic therapy when your you know, risk of recurrence is lower. So you've given both, Georgia, the trastuzumab, paclitaxel, and the TDM1. Do you think they're equally tolerated or is one better tolerated than the other? So TDM1 alone versus the combination therapy. I found that TDM1 alone is probably better tolerated than the combination therapy. With the paclitaxel, you have the side effects of peripheral neuropathy, slight nausea. So I would say TDM1 better tolerated. So let's talk a little bit about the second patient, Lita. And you know, like a lot of people with metastatic breast cancer, she has a pretty complicated story. But maybe we can just kind of focus down on what happened to her this past year, because I think it capsulizes you know, some of the important issues in patients like that. So this lady, I guess, initially was diagnosed in 96, then got a second breast cancer in 2001, but at the time of the second breast cancer had metastatic disease. So she seemed like she lived with metastatic disease for more than 10 years. 
Maybe you can just kind of summarize what was going on, you know, from your perspective up until January, and then what was going on in January. Yeah, so what's wonderful about ER-positive metastatic breast cancer, especially someone that has bone-only metastases, they often do very well for long periods of time. So this lady, unfortunately, just passed away this past Sunday, and so that's met with great sadness. But she lived after she was diagnosed from 2001 until about 2008, and all she received was different forms of anti-estrogen-type therapy and did extremely well. And then she got several different types of chemotherapy and tolerated most of them quite well, started becoming quite ill early this year, and what happened was she had just diffuse skin metastases and also had lymphangitic spread and started to have bilateral pleural effusion, so she really died from sort of respiratory complications of her disease, but she had an excellent quality of life up until about January of this year. So I want to kind of focus on that situation, though. You have a patient with lymphangitic spread of the tumor, hope, into their lungs, You have this horrendous problem on her skin with recurrence. And now this lady had gotten, you know, quite a bit of treatment at that point, but just sort of taking a step back about this kind of situation. When you see a patient who has ER positive, HER2 negative metastatic disease, do you kind of automatically think about, you know, hormone therapy? That's kind of the traditional, you start with the least toxic first. But are there situations where even though it's ER positive, you're going to start with chemo because they're so sick, you want to get a response quicker, you want to get a better response? Are there situations where even if the patient's ER positive, where you're going to start out with chemo? Yeah, I think there are two different types of situations where we would start out with chemotherapy. I think overall chemotherapy is overused in the first-line setting in ER-positive metastatic breast cancer, and I've seen that from many emails that I received for a national randomized chemotherapy trial, so a lot of people emailed me questions over the last three years. So I think we always have to think hormone therapy first, but there are two kinds of situations. One is where not visceral metastases, because visceral mets can respond very well to ER-directed therapy, but the situation is where you really have, you know, pending organ failure. So a patient who's short of breath, for example, we want a rapid response. Hormone therapy is slower. A patient who has, you know, lots of liver disease, hepatomegaly, transaminitis, things like that, slightly elevated bilirubin. And then the second situation, or a patient who's extremely symptomatic from her visceral disease. The second situation is a patient who presents with de novo visceral metastases from ER positive disease. That's a patient where we also might try and get a cytoreduction more rapidly with chemotherapy and then put them on hormone therapy for maintenance, trying to maintain the response for longer. So I want to just take a minute and kind of divert out from all the information, just take a step back and take a deep breath and talk about being in oncology. And also, I know that we have a lot of experienced people out here in the audience, but I imagine we might have some people out here who are kind of new to the field. I'm thinking a little bit about what it's like to start out in oncology and walk in and see a patient in this kind of a situation. And Joyce, you know, the thing I just kind of want to throw out there is how do you approach a situation like this, both in terms of, you know, supporting the patient, supporting the family, and taking care of yourself? You know, I think it'd be interesting. This is something we don't really talk about very much. We don't share among ourselves our particular strategies for helping the woman and her family, most importantly, and also ourselves. My personal approach is one of optimism and keeping the patient 
upbeat about all the options and the fact that she can anticipate responses and durable responses and there's lots of agents out there and of course that's why we do research I mean that's why I do clinical trials is because you know you want to be part of the advances that are going to actually benefit your patients it gives us more options and it gives us a lot of optimism so I suspend all belief in terms of having any idea how long an individual will work for as Vince DeVita said when he was head of the NCI years ago when I was there, the oncologist who does not think they will cure a patient never will. And so I basically keep an open mind and just keep giving the patient the very, very best we can and expecting good things. And then as the patient's disease becomes worse, I have found out that the woman's body informs the mind as the body begins to fail. The mind understands that and then we can begin to have conversations, you know, about beginning to balance out the different goals. I do think it's important to talk about goals up front with people because different people will have very, very different goals. But in general, that's how I help the patient and myself as well. What about this issue, Lita, of goals of therapy in patients with metastatic disease? What kind of information do you give them? Do you wait for cues about what they want to know? How did you deal with it with this lady? Right. So as soon as a patient is diagnosed with metastatic disease, I do think it's important to really set goals so that we are, as the providers and also as the patients and their family, you're sort of walking down that same road. If they really think there's a high chance of curability and you do not, then you're thinking vastly differently. That's not going to work well long term. So we do set goals and our goals are for long term palliation. So giving them the best quality of life for as long as humanly possible. And most patients join you in that. I try to stay very, you know, hopeful fully optimistic, again, agree that there are so many different modalities of treatment and different options for patients these days that you can be optimistic with patients these days, and that's how I proceed on when the patient is newly diagnosed. Any comments, Georgia? I think as oncology nurses and physicians, we have to allow patients to take that time in terms of the shock and the disbelief of being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. You know, my physician colleague and I always tell patients, you know, we're your new best friends. We're here to support you. We're here to get you through this. And we're a team. And we work with social work support. So I always introduce our social worker to our patients, our new patients, so that they know that they have someone else outside of Dr. Burstein and I. So again, particularly thinking about people just starting out with this, trying to figure out, you know, what it's going to be all about, whether they fit in, because, you know, sometimes people go other ways. I want to just quickly ask you all, how do you take care of yourself, Hope? How do you cope with what you're seeing? When we were in the speaker ready room, you were mentioning you had so many patients die recently. How do you take care of yourself? It's an interesting question and one I've thought about a lot because I think that it takes a unique individual to go into oncology. Obviously, you know, I'm sure all of you have had people say to you, I couldn't do that, you know, I couldn't do that kind of work. And I think that when I'm in with a patient and I'm talking about, you know, making videos for their kids or the various things that are just, you know, especially if you're a parent are so difficult to talk about. I am in that room 150%. You know, people need compassion. They need to know that you're with them, that you're there, and it's all them at that time. And when I leave, it's left in that room. 
And I think for me, that's been the most important part of protecting myself. You know, I mean, it's hard. I mean, sometimes I'm realizing I'm snapping at everybody at home and it's because things are really <laughs> stressful at work. But it just has to be compartmentalized, at least for me. You know, my mother died of metastatic breast cancer when I was a transplant physician. And after that, I moved into breast cancer. And, you know, I learned a lot from that experience. Not only did the physicians not talk to me ever, even though they were my colleagues and friends, and never teach us about what we were going to experience at home or how to manage it, but they never spoke to me afterwards either. And I think that that kind of communication, if you can do that and give that to people and go home and put it in another compartment so that you know, your life is your family and your life outside, that that's an incredibly enriching experience for us as well, and we give a lot back. So Georgia, I never cease to amaze at people like you all who take care of patients, because I'm focused all on education at this point. You know, how you guys seem pretty happy, adjusted. I, you know, I guess, again, maybe there's some kind of, but you know, when you think about what you are dealing with day after day, room after room, what's your, you know, you have a nursing student who comes up to you rotating through oncology and she goes, well, you know, are you depressed, you know, or how do you take care of yourself? What would you say? I think we use a lot of humor. I use a lot of humor in rooms with patients. I'm there, as Hope said, 100% present. I don't do as good of a job as she does when I leave the clinic because I tend to take a lot home with me. But using humor, I mean, you're in the room 100% present. We leave the room and in the workroom, we tend to tell stories, joke around. I use travel as my outlet, so my patients will always joke around and say, well, where are you going next, Georgia? And I'm off to Greece next week. And so that's my outlet and exercise, obviously. But I think to go in oncology, you have to 100% be committed to it. And if you're not there to help support patients, to form relationships, hopefully long-term relationships with patients, it's really not the right place for someone in oncology. Yeah, there's a lot of joggers out there I see in oncology, <laughs> I guess, uh, mulling over what's happened to them in the last 24 hours. Well, there's another issue, too, as we start to swing back into the specifics of this patient, Lita, which is, you know, what can we realistically offer them? You talked about goals. And I want you to analyze a little further what happened to this lady from January until last Sunday when she died. And not just from the point of view of sort of medically what happened, but did you as a oncology professional feel a sense of gratitude that because of your management, maybe she did better than she might have done? What happened? Yeah, so again, we had numerous conversations with this woman and her husband and daughter were always there. She had a wonderfully supportive family with her always. She was never by herself. And yet she had a very, very difficult time talking about end of life issues and would always burst into tears and you sort of couldn't get into the meat of some of it. And so we would open that door maybe answer a question or two, and then that was enough for that day, and you gotta know when to stop and not you know, beat people over the head with bad news. And so we continued on and had very frank conversations even beginning in January about, is this what you wanna do? Do you want to continue on, understanding that that risk-benefit ratio may be tipping in the wrong direction in terms of the therapy may actually sort of worsen side effects and how you're feeling in general. And so it's always that balance. Did the word um, hospice enter the conversation? Yes, 
And so we always give patients permission. Don't be doing this. Don't continue on for your family. Don't continue on for us. Don't continue on because there's another chemotherapy that we haven't tried. This has to make sense for you, and you, again, have to understand what our goals are, and here are the potential risks for chemotherapy. So the last chemotherapy that she had just prior to January was an old regimen, so we gave her oral CMF, and after one cycle, she ended up in the ICU with just horrible mucositis and pancytopenia, which she had done great on every other regimen, so it was a complete surprise and shock. So again, clearly the toxicities outweighed the benefits for her, but even after recovering from that, she said, I'm not ready. I want to go on, I understand what the toxicities are, and she had a very short but very significant response to a drug called aribulin. And I think it gave her some more time to really do some more planning and preparing because when she really then kind of went down in the last six weeks or so, there was much less crying. Her family came in and they all agreed she was kind of in a better frame of mind and sort of ready. So we're gonna talk a little bit about the various particularly late-line chemo regimens that are available in the HER2 negative as opposed to the HER2 positive situation. Even if the patient has an ER positive tumor, eventually in metastatic disease, as in this lady, the hormones kind of stop working and then you're on chemo. And I'm amazed that after being in the ICU, she wanted to be treated again. And I think there must be people out there somewhere, maybe in other parts of medicine, who look at us in oncology and say, you know, maybe we overtreat, we, quote, push chemo too much. And, you know, aribulin is just one of a number of drugs you could have given that might have had some anti-tumor benefit in this situation. But can you look at specific symptoms that she had of the tumor that actually got better, that made her feel better? Yeah, so she had a lot of edema associated with her skin metastases. So rather than having lower extremity edema from the waist down, she had a ton of edema from the waist up. So her whole chest was edematous, her arms were edematous, her neck was edematous, she was short of breath. So she was very, very uncomfortable. And with the aribulin therapy, I think she lost like 20 pounds of fluid very quickly. She had a dramatic response in terms of mostly this edema. The, the skin metastases may be quieted down in terms of the erythema, it didn't go away by any means, but she clearly felt better for maybe a six week period of time. And then very quickly she progressed, which as I was looking back and preparing for this program was actually what she had done with paclitaxel. She had only had a very short, if any, response to paclitaxel, which makes me sort of realize that maybe that's why she only had a short duration of response to the aribulin therapy. We're gonna talk about some of the chemo options in advanced disease, but could you identify any side effects or complications that occurred from the aribulin? Yeah, so I was scared to death of giving the aribulin because probably the biggest side effect is neutropenia, and she had gotten terribly neutropenic with oral CMF, which I wasn't expecting at all. So that was our very big conversation before we started of you could end up in the ICU again, you could end up with terrible neutropenia. We opted to give her neupogen in between day one and day eight, and then again after day eight to I think please ourselves more than anything. But she actually had minimal of any side effects from the aribulin, so she did terrific for that short period of time. And I want to ask Joyce and Hope for their experiences in this advanced disease situation and, you know, how often you see people benefit as opposed to end up in the ICU as this lady. But just before I get to that, I'll give you a chance to think about that a little bit. Georgia, you know, one of the things we talked about is setting goals. And I wonder, too, if you could talk a little bit about events that people point towards in terms of things that are important to them 
and being able to sort of achieve that or experience that. Another great question, and when Lita and I were discussing her patient, her patient wanted to wait till her granddaughter her graduated, granddaughter. and she made it till that day, and they were able to Skype so that the patient and the granddaughter could share. That's very, very, very important for people, and I think sometimes when we're looking at lines of chemotherapy, chemotherapy options, we try to involve the patient as much as possible. And hair loss, as we've discussed, is a huge side effect that affects a lot of our patients. And so if they have a wedding coming up, if they have a baptism, a birthday party that they want to keep their hair, then, you know, if we can, we'll choose a chemotherapy that allows them to maintain their hair. I think allowing people to try and get to those points in life, we try to do our best to do that. And I think people have a lot of hope and a lot of drive to get to those points in life. And like your patient, you know, it's interesting that she waited until that day. And I think we've all probably had personal experiences within our family. My uncle recently passed away and he was, you know, we thought he was in the ICU intubated on multiple pressors. He was waiting for his son to come in from the south. And, you know, as soon as the son got there, a few minutes later, he died peacefully. And people wait for things and we have to do our best to get them there. And interesting text comment, quote, this is from Erico 360, which I'm told is Washington State. Just the thought on self-care, I find that our patients give us so much back, and that makes it so valuable and seems to help me. I hear that a lot from people who are taking care of patients. Kind of amazing to think about it. So what about this late line situation, Joyce? Do you see meaningful responses to chemotherapeutic agents? We're gonna talk about aribulin and the taxanes and gemcitabine and you know, the whole litany ixabibilones out there. You know, do you see people who really tangibly benefit? Yeah, the patients again are very heterogeneous. In general, patients who have a history of having some benefit from previous therapies are the ones who have the highest chances of getting additional benefits. So cancer that's been sensitive in the past can definitely continue to be sensitive over time with non-cross-resistant agents. Performance status makes a big difference. We don't understand physiologically why that is, but the stronger patients are, the higher the chances are that they will benefit. And then, of course, end organ function, particularly liver dysfunction, can make it quite difficult to treat patients with meaningful doses. Conversely, patients who have had pan-resistant disease where they really haven't benefited those patients tend not to benefit from additional cytotoxics or endocrine agents. We really need to think about getting those patients onto novel clinical trials with novel agents, you know, to overcome resistance mechanisms. So, but generally, yes, and this is one of those situations where we can't really say, you know, two or three regimens should be it in terms of therapies for metastatic disease because there certainly are patients who can benefit from, you know, six, eight, ten lines of therapy depending on their past history. And when we've polled oncologists, actually Hal Burstein, your colleague, Georgia, asked us to ask this question. We actually found that on average, people like this go through around five lines of treatment. So some more, some less. I want to go through some of the content issues that relate to this. But first, maybe you mentioned it, Lee, but I want to ask you, Lita, did this woman ever go into hospice? So she was admitted the week before she passed away with a pretty significant chain, so she had fallen at home. And again, even a week or two prior to her passing away, she was at home and functioning fairly well. So she went down very quickly and very hard and had fallen at home. And so I brought her in and admitted her in clinic that morning when I found out, and she died about five days later. So she was discharged from the hospital to an inpatient hospice setting, which is another interesting question about kind of where do patients want to pass away and what's best 
for the patient and their family. So we had a long discussion and as much loving family as she had, you know, respiratory wise, she had significant needs and I was afraid that she was gonna have somewhat of an uncomfortable passing if she didn't have 24 hour care. And her family agreed that an inpatient setting was the right place and I completely agreed and she died within 48 hours. So let's go through a few content issues fairly quickly and hope in the past, when we did breast cancer conferences, we were talking a lot about the anti-VEGF agent bevacizumab, but as was mentioned, this is no longer FDA approved in breast cancer. I'm not exactly sure how much it's being used right now. I don't think too much, but I'm just kind of curious what your perception is and what's happened in your own practice in terms of bevacizumab. Well, it's really interesting. We've been involved in the studies with bevacizumab from the beginning, and so we used a lot with the withdrawal of approval, and even slightly before, I think we were using it less frequently. And I think where we've ended up is that bevacizumab is still being given in individual cases and patients who have very chemotherapy-resistant, ER-negative, HER2-negative disease. There were two publications recently in the neoadjuvant setting looking at bevacizumab, suggesting that patients who had more proliferative disease might have been the ones who benefited from pathologic complete response. Some data looking at plasma VEGF levels that's going to be looked at in a trial called the Meridian trial, which is opening this year. So I think that there's still some work going on trying to figure out where we should be using bevacizumab in breast cancer. You know, I have a patient who's been on bevacizumab and erlotinib, a EGFR inhibitor from a phase two clinical trial now for 10 years, I think 11 years. Anyway, you know, she's a patient who had completely resistant triple negative breast cancer, an African-American woman, and, you know, I have, we have no idea why she responded. So I think that, you know, this is obviously a big issue for all of us doing work and research is that we really need to identify the patient, the tumor subsets as much as possible that benefit, but that's where I think we're using bevacizumab now. So, I mean, we could spend the whole time talking about bevacizumab and, you know, the FDA and cost, you know, which somehow, you know, you got to think was somehow involved with this whole discussion, but we're going to stick with clinical issues here. And Lita, this sort of general question, you know, we have a lot of chemo agents out there beyond the taxanes and the anthracyclines and even specialized taxanes such as napaclitaxel. How do you go about, you know, sequencing these in patients like this? Right. That's a great question. I think Georgia alluded to one consideration, and that's what the patient wants. So there are patients that would much rather take a pill than coming in IV. They come from long distances. That's important. Hair is always an issue. Some patients say, just give me anything so I don't have to lose my hair. And others say, I don't care. Hair is not a big issue to me. Some of it is comorbid conditions. Some of it is how they've tolerated their chemotherapy prior. Have they had a lot of immune suppression or other complications, peripheral neuropathy? and that may help you in your selection. So there are lots of different decisions that go into helping select a chemotherapy regimen in the metastatic setting. So I'm going to ask Georgia just for one clinical pearl in terms of capecitabine, in terms of you have a patient who's about to begin capecitabine. Any comment you want to throw out there about something that maybe you might want to say to them? I think, as Lita had mentioned previously, adherence is the big buzzword here, and if the patient's not taking the pill, it's not going to work. I think we need to make sure what other issues could be playing into it, so I think we need to make sure that we touch upon all the issues, cost being one of them, tolerability, adherence. 
And of course, you know, another issue with Cape Cytobine is the potential for hand-foot syndrome. Especially uh, with the hand-foot syndrome, I think it's important that you educate patients to let us know if they're having those side effects because we would rather hold the medicine, allow the side effects to resolve and to restart the therapy versus patients who don't want to tell us about their side effects because they're afraid we're going to stop the regimen, but we can get them back on. So Hope, this lady received, you know, relatively new agents, has been out there that along, and you've done a lot of the work on it, Aribulin a very fascinating agent. You, know, you have a patient who's about to begin that. I'm curious what you would say to them. Let's assume it's more educated patient who really wants some information about what aribulin actually is and what we know about it. <laughs> aribulin, That's uh, the sea sponge. <laughs> yeah, aribulin is a halochondrin analog that works more like the vinca alkaloids and taxanes, but causes these non-productive aggregates of tubulin. And it's a halochondrin analog, so it comes from the marine sea sponge. But it's a really interesting agent because it mainly causes bone marrow suppression. So what I've done is after treating the first patient and having her get neutropenic and get admitted actually briefly and have mucositis. In patients in the very, very advanced setting with some organ dysfunction, I usually start low. So what I tell the patients is, you know, call if you have any problems, you know, mouth sores, fevers, anything like that. You're checking their blood counts on day one and day eight. So you have a pretty good idea of how they're doing because you get their blood counts on day eight. And then I start a little lower on the first dose. You know, if they tolerate it well, it's easy to go up. It's just harder to take it back. And then we watch for neuropathy as well. There was an 8% rate of grade three neuropathy in the EMBRACE trial and when people had three to five prior regimens. So it's not that high, but you know, you obviously want to watch out for that because that's a quality of life issue in your patients. I mean, in patients with ER positive disease in the late line setting, we've seen some really nice responses. It's not going to last for six months, but you know, except for in a very isolated case, but we've been able to rescue people back and really give them a little bit more time at a critical time when they're really facing, you know, a short survival. Joyce, any comments on this so-called EMBRACE study that was done with the ribulin? It was pretty advanced breast cancer. And, you know, the benefits, as you see with a lot of these agents, when you actually look at the papers, look fairly modest. But I guess it also is in a very late-line situation. What did you think about the study and what it found? Well, it was an interesting result. I was a little skeptical of it, I must say, when it first came out. But having used the agent, now it definitely has enough of a non-cross resistance that, as we've been sort of discussing, and this patient's an excellent example of that, even in triple negative disease, it's got enough of a non-cross resistance to get people some benefit, and it's going to give them some symptom reduction, tumor burden reduction, and probably prolong survival. So Lita, you know, in this situation, I could see how scary it must have been to give it to her after she'd just been in the ICU for cyclophosphamide. And you know, we see these papers that have numbers in them like this in terms of toxicity. But what do you say to somebody who's about to begin you know, this agent in terms of what to expect? And if they say to you, what's the chance I'm just going to kind of cruise through this and feel the same or better? Right. So this was a very long discussion and a very mutual decision that we all made with she and her family. She really didn't have peripheral neuropathy, so that was not a big issue. She had not had nausea as a common side effect or constipation. Alopecia was already there, so that was a non-issue. So what I very much focused on with her was my fear of neutropenia. We were worried enough that we actually gave her full dose, but I told her that it would be very possible that I would hold day eight. And again, we used days two through five, and actually she did just fine. 
So but you gave actually, the Nupigen without having her get neutropenic first. That's correct. So we prophylaxed her with Nupigen, right or wrong. That was our decision based upon her prior recent ICU stay. So another thing that's going to happen at the ASCO meeting in a few weeks is HOPE is going to be presenting one of the most anticipated studies. But I think you were kind of alluding to it when you said you'd been doing the study the last few years. This incredible randomized study that the CALGB did and that she headed comparing paclitaxel, nabpaclitaxel, and ixabibolome. And I know I've tried to sort of squeeze out of her what she's going to say, and she won't. <laughs> so that's okay. You'll hear about it. But what we really want to talk about is these agents, what we know about them today, and particularly from the patient education point of view, what you say to people and what we know about these agents. And let's start out, Hope, with nabpaclitaxel. Can you describe kind of what, if a patient says, well, what is it and what should I expect from it and what's the difference between this and the paclitaxel? So what I tell patients is it is paclitaxel, but instead of being mixed with a solvent, cremophore, it's attached to albumin, the natural carrier of non-water-soluble agents in the body, and that the body has a system actually for taking albumin up out of the blood into the tissues so that nabpaclitaxel can capitalize on that. We know that nabpaclitaxel, dose for dose, causes less bone marrow suppression and peripheral neuropathy, and then you remove mostly the issue of allergic reactions to, there's certainly not going to be any to cremophore. So we tell patients that it's a shorter infusion time, which is nice for them, and they don't have to take steroids, which makes a really big difference for a number of our patients. It's not generic, so it's more expensive, but for many of our patients in the metastatic setting, I think it offers tremendous advantages. The dose is important. I think that the best data actually comes from Joyce's group, Joanne Blum, where they looked at 100 and 125 milligrams per meter squared. And the 100 milligram per meter squared dose offered a lot of benefit in patients who had no really well-defined taxane resistance and very little toxicity. This study, which is a randomized phase two trial that looked at nabpaclitaxel at either 100 or 150 milligrams per meter squared weekly for three out of every four weeks versus either nabpaclitaxel at a high dose or docetaxel at a standard 100 milligram per meter squared dose every three weeks showed very interesting data. It's actually been published in the JCO. And, you know, it was about 75 patients in each arm. The study was done in Russia. They did go and monitor all of the sites and found the data to be in good shape. But this trial suggested that the higher dose nabpaclitaxel showed benefits, but was clearly more toxic, so had a better progression-free survival. I would caution that you know every time we see a randomized phase two trial, that we really need to wait for phase three data before we incorporate more toxic doses into our practices. You know you might get a faster response, but you're going to get a lot more toxicity from using higher dose drugs. And it may be that 100 per milligrams per meter squared is just as good and less toxic. I'm just kind of curious, you know, right now at this instant, and maybe things will be different in a month. But how do you think through the issue, Hope, of using nabpaclitaxel outside a protocol setting? We have this sort of obvious financial issue that's out on the table, but are there situations where you actually prefer nab to paclitaxel, Hope? 
I actually almost always prefer NAB paclitaxel to paclitaxel at the 100 milligram per meter squared dose in patients who I think are going to be on it for a long time because they don't have to get the steroid and I think I'm going to get less cumulative neurotoxicity. In a patient who's never seen a taxane before, I usually start with paclitaxel, but in patients who've received prior taxanes, I try and start with NAB paclitaxel. And again, you know, maybe someday we'll have more cost containment issues, which put additional sort of I don't know, barriers on our decisions. But I think all of us, if all things were equal, would rather give a drug where we don't have to give steroids. And, you know, one of the things, Georgia, that interests me about this, and there's a lot of controversy about this, or a lot of people who would not, you know, sort of make the same statement that Hope did. And I don't know how much NAPACLITAXEL you use, but, or your group uses, but, you know, that issue of corticosteroids is kind of interesting. And I hear different viewpoints in terms of how much benefit there is of being, I mean, obviously, as somebody who's a diabetic on an insulin pump, it's one thing, but, you know, how much morbidity do you see from corticosteroids? Well, you have two sets of patients, a set of patients who enjoy the corticosteroids because they go home and they clean their house and it's two in the morning and they've done all their housework, (laughs) gone food shopping before they get home. So there's that group who loves the corticosteroids. And there's the other group who gets really revved up and has anxiety and heart palpitations. And for that group, they do anything possible to not get the corticosteroids. So overall, I mean, I think it's fairly well tolerated. We don't actually use a lot of nampaclitaxel and, you know, not a ton of significant side effects. I think we hear a lot more about the patients who actually like it. I want to ask Hope about ixabibalone in a second, but Joyce, this to finish out with NAB, another issue that's been debated, and again, maybe we'll be looking at this differently, is the question of neuropathy. Can you comment on what you see with neuropathy in terms of NAB versus paclitaxel versus the other taxanes, docetaxel, how you monitor it, and when you start doing something about it? Well, the docetaxel, we end up generally stopping that because of fluid retention, and that takes a lot more steroids to try to decrease that. So unfortunately, docetaxel is an excellent agent, but it's usually a pulse therapy, and then you stop. There has not been a head-to-head comparison of the, for example, weekly paclitaxel versus the weekly NAB paclitaxel to really nail down in one study the comparative neurotoxicity. So we really don't have great data. Like HOPE, however, I do have that impression that you get less of the peripheral neuropathy by taking away the cremophore. So I prefer, for exactly the same reasons that Hope said, I prefer the NAB paclitaxel because I think you can get away from some of that chronic adrenal suppression that happens with the pulse dexamethasone. Patients get less cumulative fatigue, I think. But I start with 100 per meter, and I have no compunction about going down to the 80 per meter, usually at about grade two. And what I find is that it stops getting worse. It doesn't necessarily get better either at the 80 per meter, but it stops getting worse. And that's what I want. I want to be able to continue therapy that's well tolerated for as long as the patient's disease is responding. What tends to be your first taxane in a patient who hasn't had one? Nabpaclitaxel is my preferred taxane in the metastatic setting because we're looking for that really good palliation to try to keep the patient on a therapy that's working for them with very, very minimal toxicity. Okay, so Hope, just a word about ixabibalone. I was kind of excited when I saw a new agent come out, but now I'm not really sure where things stand with it. I hear people talking about toxicity. How does it work? Are you using it at all? 
So ixabepilone is an apothalone. It's the only approved apothalone. Again, it blocks microtubule function in a manner more similar to the taxanes, but binds to a different site and clearly can overcome some degree of taxane resistance on a actually a functional level. It's a very potent drug and it's a more potent polymerizer than say paclitaxel is. Unfortunately, at the doses that were tested, 40 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks, it also has a lot of toxicity. So a lot of cumulative neurotoxicity and bone marrow suppression. And so that can result in some degree of stomatitis, which we don't see as much with weekly paclitaxel. It is effective in patients whose cancer has progressed on taxanes, anthracyclines, and capecitabine, as shown in a study published by Edith Perez with response rates of about 11% on central review, but you know, patients stayed on it for a few months. So my take on this, you know, the study that was done that looked at ixabepilone and capecitabine that was better than capecitabine alone is interesting because we took the triple negative patients, the patient was reported as triple negative from that study and from a study in Europe, and we had over 400 patients, and it looked like that combination was really a whole lot better than capecitabine for that aggressive group of patients who tend to have capecitabine resistance. So I think that there are some settings where ixabepilone can offer benefit. My general take on it is to start at 30 or 35 milligrams per meter squared. I think 40 is too high. We studied the weekly dosing and met a futility endpoint in our randomized trial that Neil showed a little bit earlier. So clearly the weekly dosing wasn't better than paclitaxel. And we'll certainly report all the neuropathy data from these doses that were used in my trial over time initially at ASCO. So Ixabepilone's interesting. You know, the initial data suggested we didn't need pre-meds, but we've had some allergic reactions. There's a little cremophore there, so we give the pre-meds. And I would say that, you know, my use of ixabepilone is much less than because we have other drugs which are a little less toxic. So I really want to get to that man with breast cancer, particularly if I saw your email about how he hates his therapy right now, but hopefully we'll get uh -huh. to that. But just a word about the newest addition to the treatment in these patients with HER2 negative metastatic disease, Joyce Everolimus. And again, we just saw that data at uh, this December again. And it's really cool what they're doing nowadays. They present the data and publish it like instantly. So you can see the whole paper, which is what they did in the New England Journal. We'll see whether it's gonna get approved in breast cancer. Just a word though, Joyce, what is it and what do we know about it? So Everolimus is an oral agent that's been approved on the market for some time for renal cell carcinoma, and it blocks mTOR. And mTOR is a key signaling protein in that very important PI3 kinase pathway. And it's really nice because it's the first thing we have to really inhibit this pathway specifically. So it's a brand new agent. And I've heard Fabrice Andre, who has presented and discussed these data, say that this is the biggest advance in breast cancer since trastuzumab. I actually agree with that. I think this is a really, really important new therapy because mTOR actually gets in the way of response to anti-estrogen therapy, can get in the way of response to trastuzumab, et cetera. So this Bolero 2 trial that's been published now was eczemestane, 
versus exemestane with the everolimus in patients who had already had progression on anastrozole or letrozole. And there was a really huge improvement in median progression-free survival. Wow. Not much difference in objective responses, but a huge improvement in median progression-free survival. So these are very, very exciting data. The big deal is watching out for the mucositis. And we have found that using prophylactic miracle mouthwash with hydrocortisone in it. So a steroid mouth rinse four times a day. We use the salt and soda. We start with the 10 milligrams. Patients still get the canker sores. We say stop, keep going with your salt and soda. Importantly, keep going with your steroid mouth rinse. We get down to seven and a half. They accommodate. Then once they're accommodated, we sneak back up three days, four days a week to the 10 milligrams. The other day, seven and a half. We let them stabilize. Then we go back up to 10 and they do well. So it's very important to try to keep this dose up. Don't be going down to five initially, but use the steroid mouth rinses prophylactically and help them to stop with those canker sores and then let them settle out and then sneak back up there to 10 if they're doing well because people can have prolonged benefit from this agent, but they must stop at the first signs of canker sores because they can get into serious stomatitis. Yeah, I've heard a lot of discussions and questions about, I'll ask Hope in a second because, of course, she's involved with the research. You're involved with everything, it seems like, Hope, but um, (laughs) in terms of the toxicity, that even though this is a pill, it's not a walk in the park. I saw Lita in Georgia furiously writing notes as, as Joyce was talking about the mouthwash and stuff. But can you talk a little bit more, Hope, about clinically? Because, I mean, this drug is probably going to end, maybe is going to be start being used this year. I don't know what your thoughts are about it. But again, how do you prepare the patient for the stomatitis? And what about the pneumonitis? Yeah, so the stomatitis is an issue. It's interesting. This is the data that was published from the presentation at ESMO, and then the presentation at San Antonio had some updated data, and the objective response rate is close to 12% compared to, you know, about 1.2% with placebo and exemestane. So a big jump, even though it's a low response rate. The stomatitis is a hard thing because there are individuals who get stomatitis and those that don't, and we don't know who they are yet. And, you know, I expect there'll be big uptake of everolimus and maybe we'll understand that in the future. It probably has to do with the way we metabolize drugs that some people are more sensitive than others. We don't have randomized data yet that says that if you you use a specific type of mouthwash, you get less or more mucositis with everolimus. So I think that these are great options for patients, but we don't yet know actually that the mouthwashes make a difference. Holding and waiting for them to get better using symptomatic relief and then restarting is probably the single best option. And it does seem like over time people tolerate it better than they do up front. We have dropped because the protocol dropped from 10 to 5 and then we didn't go back up again. We've dropped to 5 if patients have had mouth sores. And because I've used this in the setting of clinical trials, haven't gone back up again. But the patients who dose reduced in Bolero 2 didn't have any less benefit from Everolimus. So we don't even yet know that you have to take 10 versus 5 if you have mouth sores. We were very worried about this side effect, which seems to be more of a you know, life-threatening concern, which is interstitial pneumonitis, where patients get sort of a whitey haze in their lung, cough, and in the worst setting, short of breath. And it turns out that we see the chest x-ray changes you know, before we actually see any clinical symptoms. So if you start seeing that haziness on a staging scan, you want to hold the drug 
drug and consider restarting at a lower dose. If you know about the side effect, people don't get sick. If they have a cough, you get a chest x-ray, you can see it on chest x-ray, you hold drug, you lower the dose, and you don't really get people getting into trouble at all from this side effect. It's just the knowledge of these two side effects, the patients knowing about them, that's really important moving forward. And maybe this mouthwash will turn out to be a real key in reducing side effects and symptoms of mucositis. I have to say I haven't used it. Well, in our current audio program, Sarah Hurwitz, the investigator, another investigator who's used it, I don't know if you want to write this one down or not, but she (laughs) has the patient put the pill on a dollop of whipped cream so it doesn't have contact with their tongue. Ever heard of that one? No. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. I I want to finish (laughs) out in a second with your man, but we have a text comment from 832, which is Texas. Would you comment on ER-positive 74-year-old patient with local recurrence on hormonal therapy after three years? And without getting into this case, this is the kind of patient who's assuming, you know, 74, she's probably on an AI. And if ever Lymus is a proven breast cancer, this is the kind of situation where maybe it's going to be considered. But let's just finish out with your man. And, you know, we don't really ever talk about male breast cancer, but maybe in a, you know, just in a second, you can kind of summarize what it's been like to take care of him and where he is currently. Well, he's one of my favorite patients. Um, my N of two, I have two male patients in two different practices. He is a former Marine, really tough, stoic guy, whose wife is a former nurse. So she basically speaks for him. We know male breast cancer is... <laughs> Sorry, had to be said. Male breast cancer being very rare, less than 1% incidence. So, you know, we had him on tamoxifen. He completed his five years, recurred after being treated for prostate cancer. And so we started him on bevacizumab and paclitaxel, who recurred has been on two other lines of therapy, and we weren't sure what to do next. He was pretty miserable, so we decided to, although we don't have much data, only case reports, to give him Lupron with an aromatase inhibitor. So I checked in with him a week later. He said he was doing somewhat okay. His wife called me last week and said he's absolutely miserable. I haven't heard too many patients say, I want to go back on chemotherapy. So he's having a really tough time with hot flashes, night sweats, and just feeling overall miserable. So So just we'll finish out, Joyce, with your comment on male breast cancer. You know, obviously in prostate cancer, men get LHRH agonists, and it's not that easy. Real problems with, you know, everything from libido to hot flashes, et cetera, do not like it. What's your experience with endocrine therapy in male breast cancer? Well, the standard of care is tamoxifen, and you don't need an LHRH agonist with the tamoxifen. And the men tolerate the tamoxifen, I think, quite well. And so that's the standard adjuvant endocrine therapy. I have a man who just finished up his LHRH agonist and anastrozole because he had very significant coronary disease and vascular disease in general. And I was just concerned about the tamoxifen He's 85 years old from Sicily, and he runs his own restaurant. What a guy. And he half flashed his way through it, but no complaints. You know what I mean? He, he's My a tough man of Marine. few words. <laughs> uh, but he, uh, he did well. But tamoxifen is the standard, so it's pretty well tolerated. And there is a question about whether or not you actually need to give the Lupron with the aromatase inhibitor, because we've had patients respond to just were on AIs alone, men. And there are some small series that are reported, I think, from some of our colleagues in Florida that are quite interesting. So it is one, I think they get less toxicity if they just take the AI. And fulvestrant is another option. This concludes our program. 
Special thanks to our faculty, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for this special highlights program on breast cancer from a satellite symposium held at the annual Oncology Nursing Society Congress.